Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Kevin McCarthy makes concessions in his bid for House Speaker. Attacks continue across Ukraine following Putin and Zelensky's New Year's speeches. Former Pope Benedict XVI passes away. Lula is sworn in as Brazil's president. Kim Jong-un vows exponential increases in North Korea's nuclear arsenal. South Korea and the U.S. are reportedly discussing joint nuclear exercises. The International Monetary Fund warns of a 2023 global recession. The U.K.'s health chief calls for NHS pressures to be declared a major incident. A U.S. study links poor hydration to early aging and chronic disease. And New York Governor Hochul legalizes human composting. In our top story today, McCarthy offers concessions to help his speaker bid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Roll Call, CNN, National Review, and Guardian. Representative Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, agreed to make concessions to the conservative wing of the GOP as he looks to secure the necessary votes to become House Speaker of the incoming Congress. The Republican conference is set to meet today to determine how many members will be present and how many votes McCarthy needs to become Speaker. McCarthy held a video conference on Sunday and revealed the proposed rules package for the new GOP majority. Republicans hold a slim majority in the House, and McCarthy can only afford to lose four GOP votes when the new Congress convenes to elect its Speaker. There are currently nine Republicans who are skeptical of McCarthy, including five with, quote, hard no votes. McCarthy's major concessions include lowering the threshold to force a vote of no confidence on House Speaker to five members, as well as tightening House proxy voting procedures, requiring members to vote in person. The nine McCarthy skeptics responded to McCarthy's concession, saying that progress had been made, but the terms are too vague. The conservative members want to restore the previous rule allowing one congressman to force a vote to remove the speaker. It is still unclear as to whether McCarthy will secure a majority of present votes to become speaker. If this happens, the House will have to continue voting until someone secures a majority, which hasn't happened since 1923. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. And let's begin our narrative spins with the conservative narrative from Daily Caller. While the GOP establishment wants members to just get in line for Kevin McCarthy, principled conservatives must take the lead and not allow McCarthy to become Speaker of the House. He has no conviction and will do whatever his wealthy donors ask of him. A Republican majority isn't a victory if no meaningful change comes along with it, and McCarthy is the status quo politician. And we counter that with the Republican narrative coming from New York Post. The group of Republicans trying to thwart Kevin McCarthy's speaker bid is only causing division within the party and are hurting their GOP colleagues. The overwhelming majority of House Republicans want McCarthy as their speaker, and a handful of conservative insurgents are causing problems with no rational reasoning. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. And in day 313 of the conflict in Ukraine, attacks continue following Putin and Zelensky's New Year speeches. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Associated Press, Ukraine Forum, Pravda, 
the official website of President Zelensky, and TASS. Following New Year addresses from Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, in which both leaders appeared to double down on existing positions, both nations launched widespread attacks in opposition territory, each taking a number of civilian casualties. Putin's address on New Year's Eve blamed the West for aggression and accused it of trying to use the conflict in Ukraine to undermine Russia. It was a year of difficult, necessary decisions, the most important steps toward gaining full sovereignty of Russia and powerful consolidation of our society, said Putin. In Russian attacks since December 31st, at least two civilians have been reported killed and 18 more injured. One civilian was reported killed and 12 more were injured in repeated attacks on the Kherson region on January 1st and January 2nd. Attacks on Zaporizhia also left one civilian dead and three more injured. One injury was reported in each of Donetsk, Kharkiv, and Kyiv, while Sumy and Nipopetrovsk were shelled without related reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Ukrainian officials also reported that a civilian who was taken to intensive care following drone and missile attacks on Kyiv on December 31st has died of his injuries. On Monday, Ukraine's Air Force said it shot down an estimated 40 drones over Kyiv, Mykolaiv, Nipopetrovsk, and Zaporizhia in overnight attacks. Zelensky's New Year's Eve address, meanwhile, recollected when the invasion started on February 24th and described conditions following over 300 days of war, but vowed to continue fighting. We fight and will continue to fight, Zelensky said, adding, for the sake of the main word, victory, it will be for sure. In Ukrainian attacks since December 31st, pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic reported that two civilians were killed and 26 were injured in Russian-controlled territory. One civilian was reported killed and six more injured in the city of Donetsk, while one civilian was killed and another was injured in Yasnuvada. Another 15 civilian injuries were reported in Makivka, while another six were reported injured in Pervomysky. Russian media initially reported only the civilian casualties from the attack on Makivka, but later, citing the Russian Defense Ministry, said 63 Russian servicemen had been killed. Ukrainian media claimed that casualty figures were much higher, with 400 dead and 300 wounded. Scott, thank you for the update. And we have three spins emerging. A pro-establishment narrative is the first one coming from Newsweek. Putin's New Year's Eve statement shows he remains unwilling to find a peaceful solution to the conflict, contrary to past remarks. He lashed out against the West and said it was Russia's duty to fight in this war indicating he is prepared to lead Russia in a conflict that could last years. And we have a pro-Russia narrative from TASS. For years, the West has lied about its intentions in the Donbas region and deceived Russia by militarizing Ukraine. Putin had to take the difficult decisions surrounding the special operation in order to ensure the security of all Russians. And we have our first nerd narrative of today's podcast. It's being provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. And it says that there is a 31% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before the year 2030. Former Pope Benedict XVI dies at age 95. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Vatican News, CNN, BBC News, Guardian, and CBC. The Holy See Press Office has announced Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI passed away on Saturday, three days after Pope Francis informed the world he was gravely ill in his residence at Vatican's Mater Ecclesiae Monastery at the age of 95. 
The Vatican announced that the former Pope's body would lie in state at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican City from Monday to allow the faithful to pay respects, adding Pope Francis would preside at Benedict's funeral in St. Peter's Square on Thursday. Born Joseph Ratzinger in Germany, Benedict was elected Pope in 2005. He led the Catholic Church until 2013 when he stepped down because of ailing health and became the first Pope to resign since Gregory XII in 1415. Benedict served in the church for decades and was known to be more conservative than his successor. He was ordained as a priest in 1951 before becoming a cardinal in 1977. After being made a cardinal, Benedict served as a right-hand man to his predecessor, Pope John Paul II. He headed the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith for 24 years, a position that earned him the nickname, quote, God's Rottweiler. He shaped the Catholic Church's theology for more than a quarter century. But during Benedict's papacy, allegations of decades of child abuse in the church reached their peak, which saw him to be the first pope to hold an official summit to address the scandals. Thanks for that sad report, Eric. We have a narrative A from The Economist. Pope Benedict was a revered teacher, theologian, and resolute conservative. His shock resignation in 2013 was an extraordinary act of humility, which humanized the papacy. Not only will he be remembered as the first pope to step down, but also the first pope who tackled sexual abuse scandals in the church. After his resignation, Benedict remained a powerful conservative influence and continued to give his soul to a legacy that would forever stand. And Narrative B comes from BBC News. Pope Benedict's death could reshape the Catholic Church. The Vatican has had a pope and an ex-pope since Benedict retired in 2013. With Benedict's passing, a sitting pope will preside over his predecessor's funeral, and the church will not elect a pontiff, a first. Eventually, the church may have to normalize the resignation of a pope and set new protocols in the event of an ex-pope's demise. The thing that sticks out most to me about this story, you know, respectfully with the pope's death here, is the pope died and it's the third story in our lineup. Think about that for a minute. Mm, you're right. Most any other time over the last 2,000 years, that would be the biggest news story would, in the world. That would be the top story. Absolutely. <clears throat> Lula sworn in for a third term as Brazil's president. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, DW, NPR Online News, and Time Magazine. On Sunday, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva was sworn in as Brazil's president at the Metropolitan Cathedral in the capital of Brasilia. The 76-year-old leftist leader assumed the country's highest office for the third time. After his swearing-in ceremony, Lula vowed to unite the deeply divided South American country end the alleged era of darkness of his far-right predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro, and usher in a new era of social justice, environmental reform, and reconciliation. During his speech in Congress, the former labor leader delivered a message of hope and reconstruction, promising to fight poverty, work for racial and gender equality, and end deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. On Friday, Bolsonaro left Brazil for Florida in the United States. By choosing to skip the inauguration of his rival and refusing to present Lula with the presidential sash, Bolsonaro reportedly made his refusal to accept Lula's victory clear. In the October 22nd presidential election, Lula defeated Bolsonaro by less than 2%, ending the country's most right-wing government in decades. While Bolsonaro never conceded defeat, his supporters have called on the army to intervene and overturn the election results. Lula left office in 2010 with an 83% approval rating, but in 2017 he was sentenced to prison on corruption charges, which the Supreme Court overturned in 2021. 
In his third term, Lula confronts a sluggish economy and political tensions. Those were the facts, and we have two spins, beginning with a right narrative coming from the Wall Street Journal. Lula's controversial comeback threatens Brazil's democracy and the rule of law. His return to power is concerning because he intends to increase public spending, stop privatization, and reverse anti-corruption reforms. Moreover, Brazil's increasingly politicized Supreme Court, which arranged his release from prison, is overstepping its authority toward Congress. When the left's hype about the country's self-proclaimed champion of the poor fades, Brazilians could be in for a rude awakening. And we have a left narrative from the Fair Observer. Lula owes his return to power to millions of Brazilians who elected him to combat poverty and hunger, resurrect the dwindling political system, and reverse Bolsonaro's unpopular policies that plunge the country into a deep democratic crisis. Though it may be difficult for the leftist government to implement its populist, social, and environmental policies, since the extreme right dominates the National Congress, Lula has the will and the mandate to find solutions to the real-life problems that afflict most Brazilians. Kim Jong-un vows exponential increase in North Korea's nuclear arsenal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, Daily Mail, Washington Post, CNN, The Guardian, and The Korea Herald. North Korea state media on Sunday reported that Kim Jong-un pledged to exponentially increase the country's nuclear arsenal, citing the need to counter threats from South Korea and the U.S. Kim alleged that the South and U.S. have been isolating and suffocating the North. Kim also set out plans to develop another intercontinental ballistic missile system to allow North Korea to deliver a, quote, quick nuclear counterstrike, and stated that the country is about to launch its first military reconnaissance satellite. Kim's message, capping the Workers' Party's policy meeting to discuss goals for 2023, comes as Pyongyang has improved its weapon capabilities to raise national prestige, defend national rights, and safeguard national interest, while deepening ties with the PRC and Russia. Over the weekend, North Korea allegedly twice tested its nuclear-capable 600mm multiple rocket launcher system. The weapon can reportedly reach all of South Korea in its shooting range. Tensions in the Korean peninsula reached a new low early last week after Seoul vowed to bolster its air defense network and be assertive against future provocations by Pyongyang. This followed allegations that the North flew drones across the border for the first time in five years. North Korea fired some 70 ballistic missiles in 2022, a record high in a single year, including the firing of a Hwasong-17 intercontinental ballistic missile in November. Scott, thank you for that story, and it has generated several spins. The first one is a Republican narrative coming from Red State. You can't blame Kim Jong-un for flexing North Korea's military muscle when Biden is recklessly saber-rattling with Taiwan and China. How does he know the U.S. won't also team up with South Korea for an invasion of the North? Trump's relationship with and policies towards North Korea maintains stability in the Korean Peninsula. We have a Democratic narrative from MSNBC. Kim Jong-un's geopolitical actions have been erratic and his missile launches are destabilizing the peninsula. Instead of provoking a confrontation, the leader should take the Biden administration up on its offer to meet without preconditions and settle any grievances peacefully. Biden is showing strength and prudence in the region. And there's an establishment critical narrative coming from Antiwar.com. The U.S. has threatened to nuke North Korea, which has the right to defend itself. The U.S. should stop playing Globocop and prioritize solving its domestic problems. And this story has generated a nerd narrative as well. 
This one says there's a 50% chance that at least two countries will increase the number of nuclear weapons they possess by at least 10% by the year 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Turning our attention to South Korea as the U.S. and South Korea reportedly discuss joint nuclear exercises. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, YNA, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and Korea Times. South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yul has revealed that Seoul and Washington are discussing joint exercises involving U.S. nuclear assets aimed at extended deterrence amid mounting tensions on the Korean Peninsula. In an interview published on Monday, Yoon stated that the strategy of being under the U.S. nuclear umbrella is no longer enough, as Pyongyang has developed nuclear weapons, adding that the U.S. has been positive about intelligence sharing, joint planning, and joint exercises. When asked if the discussions could culminate in a South Korean version of nuclear sharing, he stressed that the U.S. is uncomfortable with this concept but pointed out that they could develop an effective measure, as good as nuclear sharing. Reacting to Yoon's remarks, a Pentagon spokesperson reportedly said that there was nothing to announce about the rock-solid alliance between South Korea and the U.S. This comes a day after North Korean media reported that Kim Jong-un vowed an exponential increase of Pyongyang's nuclear arsenal and the development of a new intercontinental ballistic missile to counter alleged hostilities emanating from South Korea and the U.S. Meanwhile, the Korea Times reported Monday that a senior analyst on North Korea believes that Pyongyang will likely carry out its highly anticipated nuclear test within the coming weeks, no later than February 16th, the birthday of Kim Jong-un's father. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an establishment-critical narrative from China Daily. It's up to the U.S. to put an end to mutual provocations and threats, but it has instead strengthened alliances and boosted joint military drills around the Korean Peninsula while Western propaganda machines spread misinformation to raise suspicion and distrust against Pyongyang. The only way to prevent an open conflict is for the U.S. to cease hostilities and address North Korea's calls for sanctions to be dropped. Voice of American News gives us a pro-establishment narrative for this story. The U.S. has sought for years to strike a deal with Pyongyang to contain North Korea's missile and nuclear programs. But all viable options have been exhausted as Kim's regime refuses to engage in dialogue. Now, it's time for Washington to increase defense cooperation with regional partners Japan and South Korea to focus on deterring Pyongyang from using its weapons to launch attacks against them. Yet another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 15% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a single sovereign state by the year 2045, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I would say in the case of Korea, no news is good news. And we had two Korea stories in a row just now. <laughs> you, you do the math. It's time to take cover. According to the IMF's chief, the global economy is heading for a 2023 recession. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fortune, Al Jazeera, Reuters, CNN, and the BBC News. One third of the global economy will be in recession this year, International Monetary Fund, or IMF chief, Kristalina Georgieva said Sunday, warning of a tough year, as the three largest economies, the U.S., the EU, and China, are showing slower growth rates. Georgieva's warning comes amid the Ukraine war, rising inflation, and higher interest rates. The IMF chief warned that China, the world's second largest economy, and Asia are facing a difficult start to 2023 after Beijing abandoned its zero-COVID policy 
and began reopening its economy. Meanwhile, the EU has been hit particularly hard economically due to the Ukraine war's impact, and half of the bloc will slip into recession. The U.S. may, however, be able to avoid a recession, Georgieva claimed. Other studies, however, suggest that the U.S. may slide into recession in the coming months. With the Fed reportedly predicting the unemployment rate rising to 4.6% in 2023, while forecasting only modest overall growth. In October of 2022, the IMF cut its global economic growth outlook for 2023 to 2.7%, down from 2.9% in July, with the Eurozone growing only by 0.5% due to higher energy prices. According to the IMF, controlling inflation had the highest priority in stabilizing the global economy. Meanwhile, China's President Xi Jinping said on Saturday the PRC's GDP exceeded 120 trillion yuan, or 17.4 trillion U.S. dollars in 2022, suggesting the economy grew at least 4.4%. Many economists had forecast the country's growth to slow to 3% last year. Some economists project a growing possibility of a solid Chinese economic rebound later in 2023. Those were the facts, and we have spins, beginning with Narrative A coming from Economist. A deep, protracted recession will manifest thanks to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, soaring food and energy costs, a catastrophic debt crisis in the developing countries, skyrocketing inflation, and visible cracks in long-standing geopolitical certainties. Policy actions that could deter the inevitable would worsen inflation, setting the stage for an even worse downturn. While no one can predict how severe and how long it may last, the next 12 months are likely to be difficult. And we have a narrative B from The Guardian. Despite many grim forecasts, a crippling global recession can be avoided with the right fiscal policies. While 2023 may be tougher than 2022 for the global economy, the upcoming slump does not qualify as a recession. Despite the slow growth rate, many economies have handled the economic pressures better than anyone thought possible six months ago. Positive growth among developing economies may outweigh advanced economies' negative growth, enabling the world to thwart the downturn's effects. And there's a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous prediction community, saying that there's an 8% chance that the first United States recession before 2032 will lead to a depression. News coming from the United Kingdom as the health chief calls on the government to declare the NHS a major incident. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, UK Yahoo, BBC News, Telegraph, and The Guardian. President of the Society for Acute Medicine, Dr. Tim Cooksley, along with the Liberal Democrats, has called on the UK government to declare a national major incident over continuing pressure within the National Health Service. At least seven hospital trusts currently have critical incidents in place, while Matthew Taylor, the head of the NHS Confederation, has told news outlets that the organization is facing the toughest winter they have dealt with. Cooksley added that the best hope of a short-term solution laid in a number of recommendations, including increased investment in primary care, social care, mental health, and ambulance services. If declared a major incident, which is confirmed only when the health of the community faces serious threat, would result in the introduction of special measures and the availability of extra resources. On Monday, Vice President of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine Ian Higginson threw his weight behind claims that between 300 to 500 people are dying every week in the UK due to delays in emergency care. The government is also potentially facing months of NHS strikes in the new year, as unions have condemned plans to raise staff salaries by 2% in 2023. 
Widespread strikes are already ongoing, with ambulance workers set for industrial action on January 11th and January 23rd, and nurses planning to cease work on January 18th and January 19th. A number of NHS trusts have told patients to avoid emergency departments if possible in recent days, as some have been forced to wait up to four days to receive care. A severe flu outbreak alongside rising COVID cases has resulted in bed occupancy reaching record levels. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a left narrative spin from The Guardian. More strikes loom. The crisis in adult social care continues to escalate, and junior NHS doctors are ready to quit their roles en masse. With the safety of the nation at stake, Rishi Sunak's government seems committed to intentionally maximizing conflict and disruption. The conservative's stubbornness in the face of reasonable demands amid spiraling inflation is putting lives at risk. A right narrative is coming from Spectator. While Sunak's government can pursue long-term reforms to the NHS, such as providing equipment, funding, and enacting repairs, few of such interventions will have any impact on the situation before the next election. Sunak will need to devise an inventive and politically astute plan to respond to this situation while protecting conservative interests in the lead-up to the next general election. Our final story ranges somewhere between hopeful and abhorrent as New York Governor Hochul legalizes human composting after death. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, Fox News, The Guardian, Axios, and BBC News. New York Governor Kathy Hochul on Saturday signed a law legalizing so-called human composting, or the natural organic reduction of the deceased, making New York the sixth state in the nation to approve eco-friendly burial services after Washington, Colorado, Oregon, Vermont, and California. The process puts the deceased body in a reusable container with organic plant materials like wood chips, alfalfa, and straw from which natural microbes break down the body. It takes roughly a month, resulting in about 36 bags of nutrient-dense soil that can be used for planting trees or land conservation. The law requires human remains to be handled by a certified reduction facility and stored in a well-ventilated location that does not contain battery packs or radioactive devices. The next steps for the Democratic governor include introducing and implementing regulations for human composting and assisting cemeteries with the requirements necessary to offer these types of services. While concerns over costs have arisen, the firm Recompose, the owners of the world's first human composting facility, say its $7,000 fee is comparable to traditional burial methods. According to the National Funeral Directors Association, the average 2021 funeral service and burial and cremation service cost about $7,800 and $6,900, respectively. Those were the facts, and we have two spins. Narrative A is the first one coming from Crisis Magazine. This is another law that strips the human body of its innate metaphysical aspects. Even before the Christian church, ancient civilizations understood the idea of the human soul to some extent. Only very recently have governments decided to forego these ideas and treat the deceased as mere pieces of garbage to be carelessly disposed of. This is immoral on religious and humanist grounds and should be vehemently opposed. And GV Wire takes us home with Narrative B. Eco-friendly burial is a positive move for those who care about the environment. This act of devotion to future generations will not contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, but instead will help to grow trees and grasses that capture carbon dioxide. Those who choose this alternative can save one metric ton of carbon from entering the environment for a similar or cheaper cost than a traditional burial. 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.